If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 13. I'm going to really encourage it again today. I say it every Sunday. Open your Bibles, whether you have a printed version or a, a phone or a tablet. Um, th- this, is, this is a passage where, I, uh, it's a long passage to a certain extent, and it, it's a passage where I hear uh, there's a bit of tension here. I'd like you, while I'm reading this or while you're reading along with me, to be asking this question. How in the world do these two passages relate to each other? Okay, just be thinking about that. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 13, as we're following on verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, Luke records this. And he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's pray again. Father, thank you so much for this text today. Holy Spirit, thank you for the record that Luke put together and for inspiring him to put these things together in the way that he did. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for these great lessons that you gave and you preached on that day and that time in that place to those people, but also to us. So Holy Spirit, I pray, I pray that you would just bless us today, illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we may hear these words from Jesus, from his heart, afresh today. And I pray these things in his worthy name. Amen. So as I was preparing uh, this sermon for today and looking at this text, I found it interesting the questions the Holy Spirit was asking or having me ask of the text. I mean, that's one of the things you do when you're preparing sermons. I mean, it's anytime you're teaching, you're, you're going to look at a text or whatever it is, and you're going you're gonna to start asking questions. What did it mean? What, what did the author intend or the speaker intend? What, what did uh, the people, or how did the people in that day receive it in their context? What, what did they think? How am I supposed to take this today? How does this speak to me today? How does it speak to you and to the congregation of the church? These are the questions that you ask of the text. 
But as you know, we've been going through for, I don't know, five or six weeks, we went through the Bible, two-part series, The Way of Jesus, three weeks, and then we've been back in the Gospel of Luke, and we've been asking some really interesting questions. And again, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing this. You'll remember that at the end of the uh, Way of Jesus series on the message, Go and Make, we asked this question, who are you? Who am I? We needed to discover who we, in fact, are because it is something we're all born. We, none of us are born knowing who we are. We spend our whole lives trying to find ourselves. And then, then last week, we, we, we asked questions about the whole subject of change. What, what, why do we even think as human beings today? Animals don't think this. Why do we as human beings wake up and almost every day think that we need to change in some way, shape, or form? And so we asked that question last week, didn't we? You know, one of the things I, I think about that when I look at the questions and I think we should see from that is this. The Scripture, it's 2,000 years old approximately, this teaching and these events, right? But the Scripture, when you look at it from that perspective, is incredibly relevant to our day. These questions haven't changed for 2,000 years. So today's question I'm going to suggest to you is one of the most existential questions of all time. Today's question for you and for me is this, what is the meaning and purpose of your life? Of life, period, right? It's right up there with, why am I here, right? Those are the two most, as they say, philosophers call them existential questions, questions about our very existence. So the question for today is, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Have you been asking that question? We, we do. We, we ask that question, and you might not find it obvious, but we all ask that question often, and we saw it a little bit in last week's message, or we should have, because last week was about a couple of tragedies, right, where, where people were killed and died. Suddenly, death came upon them. And that's one of those times when we, we, we step back, most of us as human beings, and, and we, we think about it when there's a, a loss, when there's a tragedy, and sometimes we ask the question this way. What was the point of their life? So brief, it got snuffed out. Like, what will their memory be, their legacy be? In five years, in 10 years, 20, 40, 50, 100. On my desk at home, uh, where I, I work, I have two pictures. Uh, one with my dad in the backyard of our home in Toronto, and one with my mom over on Salt Spring, where she passed away. And I, I, I was thinking about it as I'm looking at their pictures this week, and, and I occasionally will look at them. I, I love my mom and dad, and they're gone, and I'm, boy, without the pictures, the memories can fade. Mom's only gone three, four years. I feel guilty how many times each day I don't think about her. It's a very important question. But that's one of the times when we ask that. It's, it's natural when we're faced with loss of someone close to us or even those who've lost their lives in a great tragedy to ask this question in that way. What was the point of their life? And then that is when we begin to reflect on our own mortality, right? But also on the question, what's the meaning and purpose of my life? Why am I here? Well, then, of course, you also begin reflecting on that in your life when you're, you're young, right? Because, you know, you know the story, right? Most of us grow up as, as boys anyway, and, you know, you, you start dreaming about either being a fireman or making the NHL, 
right? And check out my height, it didn't happen, right? I mean, that's, but you have those dreams, right? And those are, that's going to be my meaning and my purpose in life. And, you know, other people might, you know, think they want to be, uh, I don't know, like a nurse or a doctor or a fashion model. Uh, we have these dreams, and those are kind of ways of also seeking the meaning and purpose in life. And we look ahead to those things, and we're, we're asking those questions. We ask the question, what's the meaning and purpose of my life at these times as well. But then we get a little bit more serious, you know, once we've grown up and the fireman is not going to happen, the NHL is not going to happen, and then we go to university and we decide on a career, right? We decide on what we're going to do for our lives, and we have to start thinking about that again. What is going to be the meaning and purpose of my life? The danger there, of course, is you major in something or you, you set your course in something, and then y- your work becomes your meaning and purpose in life. Or the person that you're hoping to marry or do marry becomes your meaning and purpose in life. Or, or your kids, right? Yes, your kids. And oh, how all of those things can let us down. And of course, the point is with uh, any of those things, our, our goal, is, our goal is, is if we're successful at any of those things, if they will actually give us meaning and purpose in our lives, we, listen, this word's important, at some point will reap the benefits of having found our meaning and purpose in life. So once again, just like most of the other questions we've been looking at, I think we rarely find good and, and certainly perfect answers to these questions until or unless we encounter what the Word of God has to say, right? And once we see what the Word of God says, tr- truly see and hear what the Word of God says about who we are, and, and we come to the point of understanding, first of all, who God is and what He's done, and then out of that, we can see who we are, and out of that, how then we should live, and out of that, what our meaning and purpose in life might be. What is the meaning and purpose of your life? I was thinking about from a cultural perspective this week, what, what would be the, the one answer that our culture would, would, would give? And I couldn't help it, but one of my favorite movies of all time came to my mind. Most of you will know the actor, Robin Williams. He played a character by the name of John Keating. Anybody remember the name of the movie? It's called Dead Poets Society. Remember, that there's a scene where he brings the boys down into the, the atrium of the school, the boys' school, right? And they're looking at the trophies and the pictures of these men that had gone before them. And listen, they're looking at pictures of men from decades ago. And the whole point was, they're dead. <laughs> and he gets them to walk up to the pictures and lean in. Do you remember the words that he said? Come on, you all know the words. It is the word of our culture when it comes to meaning and purpose of life. And it is this, garbage. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Suck the marrow out of life, he went on to say later in the movie. That's one of the pictures that our culture has about life is that, well, listen, you got one kick at the can. You got one go around. Get the most out of it. Climb, ride, travel, do everything as much as you can. Adrenaline rush, rush until you're at least 65. Come on, right? I mean, you've got to be in it and doing it all the time. You've got to suck the marrow out of life. Becomes a meaning and purpose in our lives. But is it really? I found this interesting quote. Pablo Picasso, the great artist, he said this. I should have actually put up carpe diem for you. There it is. Pa- Pablo Picasso said this. An interesting definition 
The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. That's interesting. We're going to come back to it. You don't have to be a Christian for very long, hanging around Christians, hanging around the church, right? And you're going to hear the definition for this, aren't you? Some of you can just, I'm, I can look at some of you and you can probably hear it ringing in your ears right now because I remember hearing it early on when I became a Christian in my 20s. It comes from the Westminster Catechism. Anybody ever heard of that? Anybody ever read that? It's, it's an awesome catechism. It's true. It's awesome. Their meaning and purpose of life that they give to us, which is biblical, says this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's good. It's very good. Solomon, the wealthiest and wisest man of all time, after spending, listen, 40 years, he spent 40 years of his life, wealthiest, richest, wisest man of all time, gifted by God in that way, he decided to conduct an experiment, and for 40 years, he decided to try under the sun, which means apart from God, to find success, happiness, fulfillment, joy, purpose, and meaning in life without God. Well, you know how that worked out for him, right? Yeah, he, he, he ended up saying that it, first of all, was futile, and second of all, his own words, it was like chasing after the wind. And then as he ends the book of Ecclesiastes and his story, he said this about the meaning and purpose of life. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Well, today I want to suggest to you that the Westminster Catechism and Solomon had it mostly right. Mostly right. But only half the story. Your sermon title for today again is The Meaning and Purpose of Life. I hope we will see three things today. The question fully answered is what I actually should have up there. Second is religion is not the answer. And I hope you know what I mean by religion. Thirdly, the answer lived out. So question number one, or the point number one, the question answered. Let's look at our text again where it says this. And he told this parable, Jesus. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. So as we've noticed, uh, noted repeatedly throughout this gospel, Dr. Luke, just as he said in the first four verses of his gospel, is writing an orderly account, not necessarily chronological, so that his good friend Theophilus would have certainty about his faith in Jesus Christ. This parable is directly linked, this one, the parable, is directly linked to the passage we looked at last week, the first five verses. And I think if you listened to last week's message or were here for it, you can see that. Parables are, as we've been over them before, very simple stories that essentially have one big idea. This parable is like that. But this parable also is an illustration of the text that we looked at last week. Last week we heard Jesus twice call us and them in that day to repent or perish. And there was a great deal of urgency to the way that he put it. Because after all, one or two kinds of tragedies that they looked at, and we saw from last week's text, came upon people suddenly, and essentially Jesus was saying, one of the things he was saying is, listen, like it came on them suddenly, like it came on people in 9-11, suddenly, that too could happen to you. So don't delay. You have no idea about tomorrow. 
repent. So there was urgency and, of course, love and compassion in Jesus and what he had to say. So this parable, first of all, reveals the heart of Jesus and the Father, God the Father, in a remarkable way. And I would suggest deeply encouraging. It opens in verse 6 simply with setting the stage. There's a man. You see in this parable here, there's a man. This man has planted a fig tree in a a vineyard, and this man expects something from this fig tree. Fruit. He, He expects it. He didn't plant it just to look at it. He planted it because he expected fruit from this tree. In verse 7, he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? (laughs) So then one day, the man is visiting his vineyard, and he says to the person who's responsible for the vines, what you've read here, but essentially I'll paraphrase it, he's saying basically this, look, every year, For three years now, I've come expecting to see fruit on my tree, and each time there's nothing. There's no fruit. I'm getting a little tired, and and, and frankly, I'm getting frustrated at how unproductive this tree is. I want you to cut it down and, listen, put the soil, the ground, to better use. Plant more vines or maybe another tree or something. The vine dresser said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, great, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So the vine dresser has this good idea. Why? This is an interesting question. He suggests that the man Let him give the tree some tender, loving care, some nourishment, special attention, in the hope that it will, in fact, do what the man expected from his tree, which is bear fruit, in the next year. And if it does, well, that'll turn out to be a good thing, right? And if it doesn't, well, then go ahead. It's your tree. Cut it down. Or have me cut it down. But I want you to imagine the scene, okay? We're, we're, here we are in this room, right? We're hearing this. We're listening to this 2,000 years out. Jesus has been preaching approximately for about two and a half hours at this point. What we see recorded at the beginning of chapter 12 all the way to this point is one long essential sermon to this point. And, and Jesus, as we know, has been saying other things that are not all recorded in the Scriptures. It's a couple-hour sermon, right? And and mostly to his disciples, but as usual, crowds come around, and especially the religious critics. So in response to his accusations that they've not been reading the prophetic signs about him, the Messiah, who he is, or judging correctly anymore what was right or what was wrong, they responded what they thought would show him that they really did know what was going on. Right? They told him the story about, you know, those Galatians, that, uh, Galileans, pardon me, that were, were killed in the temple, put to death in the temple, whose blood was mingled with the, the sacrifices in the temple. And, and they thought, well, now, Jesus, you're going you're gonna to obviously see, we, we know what's going on, because we know that those people were obviously greater sinners than us. 
And so I'll remind you what Jesus replied to them twice from our message last week when he said this, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Next, this parable. He's preaching this parable to them. We need to see it that way because they would have understand, understood this maybe a little bit differently than you are right now or I am because they're hearing this, right? And, and it's following on from what Jesus has just said and when they would have certainly understood that the big idea is this. There must be evidence of your repentance. Don't just say you've repented. Just don't go through the motions of repenting. Oh, I'm a sinner. I'm a bad person. I won't do that anymore. No. There must be evidence of your repentance. And what must that evidence be, according to this story? Fruit. A fruitful life. And on top of that, they would have also heard this. And if there's no fruit, judgment. This is one of the reasons why they didn't like him very much, right? They would have received it this way. We need to hear Jesus this way sometimes too. Parables are also full of symbolism. I remember my professor, John Keaton, um, E.J. Berry was our English teacher in high school. It was a great inspiration in my life. Um, I think I first heard the words carpe diem from him before I heard it in the movie. Uh, he was an awesome guy, but he taught us about symbolism in, in books and, and stories. And it used to drive me crazy, but now I love it. And now when you look at parables, there's lots of symbolism going on, especially this one. First of all, there's the fig tree. Now, th those people in that day probably didn't quite catch the symbolism, but certainly as the New Testament gets written and goes on, and, and, and they're writing particularly Paul and those Jewish uh, writers, Matthew, are looking back on the people of Israel, it's representative of the people of Israel. It's a symbolic representation of them. And Jesus is literally looking at these men and women in that day and going, I've been patient with you. For thousands of years, God has been patient with you. Israel, I love you. It's interesting. This is approximately one year before Jesus will die on the cross. So this parable is symbolic of Jesus saying to the people of Israel on that day, I'm going to be patient for one more year. For one more year. It's beautiful symbolism, and it's also frightening. Secondly, there is the owner who represents God the Father, and thirdly, the vine dresser who represents Jesus. So with that in mind, we see the story this way, or we should anyway. The owner, God the Father, has every right to his tree. He has every right to expect that his tree would be fruitful. It's his tree. He planted it in the garden. In the vineyard, his vineyard, and he expected fruit from it, so he has the right. The thing is, with fig trees, after about three years, here's what happens. They, they actually grow quite large, and, and they have a great big canopy over them, and here, here's the deal. When they get that big, if they are not producing fruit, 
big problem for the vines. They're soaking up a lot of it and taking up a lot of the, the moisture and the, the water that's being used to grow this tree that the vines could use. They're shading the tree, the vines, and they're not getting as much sunlight. And if it's being unproductive, well. And so what we see here is we see the righteousness of God the Father on display. He has the right to expect fruit from what he has planted, what he has created. In the vine dresser in Jesus Christ, we see this beautiful truth, though. I hope you'll see this today. We see in Jesus, in this story, mercy and grace and patience. So I'm really not sure if those Jews in that day got this, but I certainly hope that you and I do here today. Following on from the urgency in the previous words from his mouth, Jesus is saying this to you and I here today and to them in that day. He's saying, look, I, I, I love you so much that I am going to be patient with you. You know, we need to understand something also about people who are beset with tragedies. Sometimes we think, well, he wasn't very patient with them. Not so. He was patient with them until the tragedy, as he's being patient with you and I here today. Whether we are not in Christ or in Christ, he's being patient with us. Why? He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. He says, I I love you so much. I want you to repent and not perish so much. I will show you patience. I will show you my mercy and my grace. It's interesting that this peril tells us that he, the vine dresser, asks again for one more year. It's about a year from his death, but he's also asking repeatedly for you and I when we are, like Israel, unproductive. Father, give them one more year. Give them one more year. Finally, on this wonderful parable, I also hope you'll see this. Jesus says this. He says, listen, let me till the soil around this fig tree. Maybe it's got a little too earthbound, attached to the earth and this world. And I'll also give it some attention by nourishing it. This, my friends, is exactly what Jesus does for you and for me today. When we're struggling to bear fruit in our Christian life, what he wants to do for us today, if we will let him, and be in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, is have them nourish us when we're dry. When the ground around our roots is dry and hard. Why? He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. So finally on this parable, we get the answer to our question. More fully this way, the meaning and purpose of your life and my life is yes, of course, to glorify God. These Jewish men and women in that day thought that that's what they were doing. Look at us. We're religious. We're glorifying God. Not bearing any fruit... That's why Jesus gives us the full definition in John chapter 15, verse 8, when he says this. He says, by this, look at this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. 
Pablo Picasso was so close, wasn't he? He was so close. You know, when, when he said the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away, he thought, of course, it meant the gift of his art, which in that day he thought he was given away because he didn't make a lot of money from it like people are today. Sadly, 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 if you study his life, this man died as a bitter atheist after painting for 15 years repeatedly, repeatedly the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What did he miss? The gift giver. Sad. So for the Christian, the meaning of our lives is to glorify God, our heavenly Father, and the purpose of our lives is to prove ourselves as disciples by making disciples who make disciples, by bearing much fruit, by being productive. Yes, we're doing that in this church. Go forth and multiply. We're doing that with babies. But the word also means multiply disciples. When was the last time you multiplied a disciple? You, you had a part in the multiplication of a disciple of Jesus Christ in the church. That's the answer I hope you see today to the question. Number two, religion isn't the answer. We need to look at this. So let's now look at the second story. I think at first blush, as I kind of suggested when we were reading the text, you needed to be asking or were asking the question, how? How are these events even remotely related? Well, again, remember, Luke is writing, and it has this objective of writing an orderly account. This next account does not take place chronologically, but Luke is placing it there again as an illustration to what has actually been going on. It's, it's amazing. So this is a true story, not a parable, uh, example that follows on from the parable, and he's placed it here intentionally. So let's see how. Let's remember what we read earlier. I'll put the first two verses on screen. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a dis disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So, again, the, the, the picture is Jesus is there. He's welcomed into the Jewish synagogue and he's preaching. He's preaching on the Sabbath in, on that day. And so there's this woman there we see in the story who has this disabling spirit. You might want to talk about that more in community group this week. Um, it's, 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 it's an oppression of the devil for sure, not a possession. Um, and, and it's caused her to be bent over so badly that she couldn't even straighten up. And she'd been like that. Look at this again, factual, Luke, doctor, journalist, 18 years. So now we know from the previous reading that Jesus healed her completely. But before we look at that, I first want to focus on the response of the religious ruler of the synagogue on that day. Verse 14 says, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Can I ask you a favor? Don't throw this guy under the bus too quickly. Christians. Church. But let me ask you this. Do you see his heart? This word indignant in the Greek literally means raging anger. 
he's angry, listen, at Jesus and this woman. Because of what? Why? Because they're not religiously keeping the Sabbath, apparently, right? That's why he's angry with them, the way a good Jew, of course, would do it, like him. And he would think those present in the synagogue should be thinking the same way as he does. He's essentially accusing them both of being Sabbath breakers. I love this. As one commentator put it, I'll quote him. He said this, they accused Jesus of breaking, listen, the Word of God. Now think about that. The Word of God is teaching the Word of God in your presence, and you accuse Him of breaking the Word of God. It shows their hearts, end quote. But also, listen, come on. This, this ruler, along with the other leaders in the synagogue, is her pastor. He's supposed to be her pastor, or one of them anyway, in the synagogue. I mean, he should have been praying over her, laying hands on her, if not this week, many weeks, pleading with God to heal her and this affliction. And instead, his best answer is come back during regular business hours? Seriously? That's, that's the best you've got? This is what we mean by religion or bad religion. A Tim Keller quote is helpful at many points, but especially at this point. I love this where he says this, religion says this, I obey, therefore I am accepted and approved by God. The gospel says, I am accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey, I could add, and bear fruit. That's the difference. And this pardon me, Jewish ruler, as do many in the church today, did not get it. Friends, that's what happens when someone has not truly repented as these religious Jews had not. They refuse Jesus' appeal for them to repent. Instead, look, they go looking for fault in others. Let's meditate on that in small group this week and allow the Holy Spirit to check our hearts on that. Jesus' answer is pretty direct. He says this, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Of all days. Of all days. So he, Jesus, is the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, and they call him a Sabbath Hypocrites, he calls them. But, but why? why? Why does he call them? I mean, obviously we can see maybe one reason, but there's more than one. It's not just because they knew all the laws, all the laws about the Sabbath told them they could care for their own animals on that day and other things. But here's the other part of it that's very hypocritical. The laws about the Sabbath didn't say anything about not healing on the Sabbath at all. They made that up. They added that. He must have really, at that point, just driven a dagger through their hearts when, he, when they heard him say, she's a daughter of Abraham. That's like saying, ruler, she's your daughter, like you're in your family. Shame on you. So we've just seen firsthand, listen, how to ensure 
that you do not live out the answer of the meaning and purpose of your life, Christian. How not to bear fruit from this part of the story. That's how it's related. But thirdly, answer number three, or point number three, the answer lived out also shows us something from this text. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, daughter, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. She glorified God. Here's a true statement. No one could possibly be a better example for you and I of someone who lived out the meaning and purpose of his life better than Jesus Christ, right? Obviously. Obviously. And so look what he says. This is how he does it. This is how he actually lives it out, right? First of all, he sees her. Do you see anyone else when you come to gathering on Sunday? who's hurting, broken. They're here. We're here. He sees her. He calls her. He speaks to her. He heals her. He frees her. The the word freed in the Greek is in the permanent, perfect tense. This is impactful why Luke records it that way. He then, look at this. He touches her. He touches her. And immediately she's made straight. Listen, in, in that context, in that synagogue, in front of the rulers, she's unclean. In their minds, she's got this affliction because she's got sin in her life. Wrong. Well, we all do. He touches her. And immediately she's made straight, restored. Her response is to glorify God. And I have got to believe she didn't stop doing that for the rest of her life. Amen? Wouldn't you? Have you? He's healed you like that too, Christian. He's made your way straight, restored your life, or he's wanting to more and more in your life. So in Jesus, we see our purpose. We must go to places where hurting and broken people are, and as I've been intimating, they're here every Sunday. That's why we're here, by the way. And that's why we go into community together throughout the week, is because we're all hurting, broken, sinful men and women, wanting to bear more fruit in our personal lives, but also in the lives of others. We must be looking for those who are in bondage, who are lost. We must call them to follow Jesus, to repentance before it's too late. Speak into their lives, and then we will see how Jesus will do what he does, which is to heal people, free men and women from the bondage of sin, making their lives and their ways straight. In this woman, we should see something really beautiful as well. I sure hope we will. For those of you here today, for those of us here today, struggling with a nagging, ongoing illness or a nagging, ongoing sin that just can't seem to put to death, that's holding you down, I hope in this woman here today, you can see hope. Look, 18 years. Come on, she had every right 
at least on a few given. The intimation here is that for 18 years, not only did she struggle with this, but every Sunday, Sabbath on a Saturday, she got up and said, no, you know what? I have every right, the way I feel, the way I look, the way they treat me, they ignore me, to stay home. No, I'm going to go to where I need to be, where God is and His people are supposed to be, so I can be healed, so I can be healed. So listen, in conclusion, I want to do two things this morning. I want to simply read the words of Jesus for you from John 15, verses 1 to 5. I don't want to give a lot of, I'm not going to give any commentary afterwards. I just want to ask you to meditate on them as I read them. You could read along if you have them in front of you. And I also want to put a picture on screen for you as you do this. But first, I'll tell you this. The main part of the story is a little bit different in this parable. In this story, it's really not a parable, it's a teaching. The vine dresser in this story is God the Father. Jesus is the vine, and you and I here today are the branches. Recently, Janice and I were up in the Okanagan. They, they make wine up there. Has any of you, have you ever heard about that? Uh, we went back to a winery that we went to when they first opened 10, 12, maybe 14 years ago. The winery, interesting name, Ex Nihilo. I remember seeing that when we were driving by uh, many years ago, and I was like, that's the fifth word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created from the Latin, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Let's go check them out. Nobody in there knew that, right? They just knew they made wine. This is actually taken uh, from their vineyard. We were up there about a month ago. And uh, I just want you to see, when you look at these pictures, um, how lush and productive these vines are, right? And they just go on and look at all the grapes on them. But listen, as you read, I read this text for you in closing. They didn't get that way by themselves. No. They had both man and God nourishing them. And right now, they're probably harvested. Why? Because there's much fruit. That's what much fruit looks like, by the way. What does fruit look like in your life today? Read with me. John chapter 15. I am the true vine, Jesus said, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have given to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen. Pray with me, would you?